Welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Revenue Marketing podcast, brought to you by Revenue Marketing Alliance. Doing more with less has become a harsh reality for many marketers in the current economic climate. Budgets are tightening, yet the pressure to drive results remains. In this episode, host Paul Sweeney and guest Austin Beveridge, CMO at ARC, dig into how revenue marketers can optimise their paid media spend when funds are limited. Whether you're operating with a shoestring budget or just looking to get more bang for your buck, you'll take away actionable tips to refine your media strategy. Now, let's join Paul and Austin to learn how to do more with less in paid media. Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Revenue Marketing Podcast. Thank you for your company, as ever. Today, we're going to do more with less with your paid media budget. I like this topic for a couple of reasons. Firstly, identifying what's working and scaling at the expense of other programs is at the crux of revenue marketing. Also, it won't escape the listeners that we're in an inflationary environment. Budgets are under pressure and many, many marketing folks being asked to do more with less. And often the easiest budget to dial down is the paid media budget. We're going to dig into this today with uh, Austin Beveridge, who works at ARC. Austin, thanks for joining us today. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're up to? Thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, I lead marketing at ARC. For those who don't know, ARC's a Series A fintech, providing two main products to startups, capital and cash management. So startups come to ARC regardless of where they're at in their life cycle and can access the capital tools they need to grow their business. And when they have capital and they're looking for places to diversify the risk or grow their grow their cash balance across money market funds or ETFs or cash sweeps. We have a whole suite of accounts that helps them do just that. Great. So marketing and finance, you should be uh, well-placed to tell us how we can save money on our uh, ad budgets, right? That's right. That's right. It's been uh, an interesting journey. Our founding team came from private equity, so it's definitely a different environment, especially having come from Bolt, which is another larger fintech. Um, and that we scaled from a hundred-ish million dollars in valuation to twelve billion when I had left. So it was an exciting journey, and happy to share some of the learnings here today. Great, let's dig into it. So I guess as it's most simple, is is reserving ad budget basically working out which ads work and which ads don't? Is that is that what we're talking about at its uh, crux? I think today it's an interesting point in time. I think there's a lot more pressure from both external forces, meaning your board, as well as internal forces, meaning other stakeholders for budget. And I think today the market environment supports campaigns that drive positive ad spend. So historically, when the growth at all costs movement, you could spend money um, and you could acquire a customer at a net loss. Today, that's a much different story. You have to acquire a customer but a much shorter payback period, meaning less than 12 months. And you have to do it at three to four times your ad spend. So if you spend a dollar, you need to generate three to four dollars in top line revenue, um, which ultimately yeah. then hopefully have high enough margins to trickle down into gross margin and ultimately profitability for the business. OK, so what do you think has driven that change? Well, there's a few things that have driven that change. Um, first is investor sentiment. So when they're looking at the risk parity of their dollars with interest rates rising, their time horizon for investments and meaning their payback is short. Mm-hmm. So in a zero rate environment, they're okay waiting seven to 10 years for an investment to pay off. Now that interest rates are seven to 10% and they can get 5% in uh, T-bill ladder, which is effectively risk-free, the time horizon that they see for these investments has gone way down. So it's gone from a seven-year 
to most people I've talked to is three to four. So three to four okay. years, meaning from start to finish of that business, it needs to be cash flow neutral or ideally cash flow positive. So that's the first thing is investor sentiment on risk horizons. The second thing I would say is uh, the size of investment rounds. So historically, uh, you'd have very large series A's, very large series B's and so on and so forth. And so you'd continue to raise capital. And because those unit economics were negative, you, you continuously had to do so. Well, mm-hmm. when you can continue to raise capital, you can keep spending money. Well, when the VC dollars have shut off, which now they're down almost 60% year over year, the parity switches because now you can't spend the same amount that you could a year ago to acquire the same customer. And so you have this interesting environment of VCs not putting money into the business. And also now the business has to get to free cash flow positive or neutral in a faster time horizon. And so you have to be much more efficient with your spend. And so when you put those two together, now marketers can't hide behind the MQL, SQL. They have to be true revenue drivers. And so now you have to be hyper efficient, not just looking at how many leads you drive, but actually the dollars you spent and how much revenue ended up coming from those campaigns. So it's also a mind shift shift in marketers away from just driving MQLs and SQOs and SQLs into now driving actual revenue into the business. Okay, so there's downward pressure on marketing budgets and paid budgets and also the, the time frame that investors are going to expect to return on investment on money that they just into into organizations is, is shortening. So what happened before, you know, the 20 year, 20 years, you know, since probably the financial crisis where, uh, you know, interest rates were effectively or pretty close to zero, they, they could probably going to get, you know, that looks unlikely to return anytime soon. I uh, appreciate perhaps inflation is coming down across the world at the moment, but um, interest rates seem to be, you know, stabilizing significantly higher and normalizing higher than where they used to be. So what, what does that mean for us as marketers? What, what are we going to have to do? How are we going to operate differently? Because for most people in, in, in this industry, right, they've, they've spent their entire career in a, in an era of very cheap money. And now we're, you know, we're entering into an era where we're probably going to be paying more to get that money into the company and there's going to be some keener eyes on how that money is spent. So how are we going to level set here and, um, and kind of create a new normal for paid budget? Yeah. So just to touch on the first point. So yes, to your point, VC dollars are are pulled back. The interesting thing about VC is they have that still seven-year time horizon. So the VCs still need to deploy the capital. Typically, it's a seven-year cycle. So every seven years, they get new LP funds. They have new funds that they need to deploy. For the past two, call it two-ish years, they've pulled back on spend. And so we looked at the data from uh, PitchBook. We looked at the data from a few other sources. And as it stands today, there's roughly $1 trillion across VC and private equity that's sitting on the sidelines. So if you mm-hmm. take out two and, a, two and a half years out of a seven-year time horizon, that's 33% roughly of their time horizon that they cannot deploy capital or just have chose not to. So what does that mean? That means on the back half of this cycle, there's going to be another bull run. Now, when does that happen? Well, that's a different question. My thoughts would be when the Fed decides it's going to shift course and go back down to Cutting rates, that's when VCs will double down. We're starting to see that in the generative AI market, where I think this last quarter it was something like 12 or $14 billion deployed in Gen AI. So that's a sector where they've definitely decided to double down and pour funds in. It's just across the board, we're still down across every sector, whether it's fintech or payments or um, health tech, med tech, et cetera. 
Now to the second question, what are marketers supposed to do? Well, if you can survive with a shorter budget and you can survive to getting free cash flow positive and you can demonstrate that you can provide that return on ad spend that generates a net positive for the business, the moment that sprinkler comes back on and the water starts to flow or the funds start to flow into your account, now it's like poorly gasoline on the fire. So now is the time to be super efficient, figure out what works, because once you've figured out what works, then you just scale it. And so it's making marketers have to rethink their jobs, but it's also making them better marketers because now they can't behind, hide behind negative unit economics to acquire businesses. They have to acquire them profitably. And because they can do so, when they get the money back into their funds, now they can deploy that scale and take those businesses doing 20 to 30 million in ARR to 100 million or 200 million because they know how to scale profitably. So I actually think it's a good thing that they've had to pare back their spend and rethink how they allocate dollars across the entire marketing stack, whether it's in paid or events or field, doesn't really matter. As long as you understand your unit economics, you understand how much you can spend to acquire a customer, you find the channels that are profitable. When you get those dollars back into your account, you can scale it and that business will be much more healthy coming out of this BC drought. Yeah. Yeah. I like your point that this is, that this is making us better marketers. I had a similar feeling when GDPR was introduced, firstly in Europe. I know that in North America and other parts of the world that um, similar policies are coming down the line um, in terms of how we govern uh, how we govern data. And I have a strong belief that that made us better marketers as well. It allowed us to look at what's working and how we use data. So that's a different conversation. Um, in terms of, um, you know, it really feels like what you're leaning into is data really. Um, and working out or being able to work out or plot a straight line from what marketing is doing through to through to revenue. For the marketers that have that in place, that's great. I would still say that's quite a subset of the marketing, you know, the marketing industry, if you like. I think, you know, if you work in SaaS, you'll probably have a really keen eye on that and they're really leading organizations that are that are working in the kind of revenue marketing field. But that's probably, you know, two, three percent of organizations out there. Would your first point of call for the other, you know, 97% be you need to get on top of your data and work out what's working? <laughs> it's a good question. And I laugh because I used to be the guy who didn't care about data. And I hate to say <laughs> it, but it's just the honest truth. Like I just, I, okay. for me, I had too many different uh, fuels in the fire. And so as long as everything was working, then I didn't look at anything. Because as long as okay. you're going up into the right, you're driving leads, you're driving MQLs, you're driving... SQL is like, as long as you're driving and hitting those goals, it doesn't matter. That was a very different environment two and a half years ago because we had so much money, right? We had all these resources that we could exceed and continue to succeed at, right? You just keep raising more money. Now we're in a very different environment where you have to hit your cash flow neutral or positive because otherwise investors won't continue to give you money. And so there's this dichotomy of you have to find the right channels because if you don't, then you'll run out of runway before you can actually scale the business. So it's this interesting dichotomy of you having to look at the data to figure out what works and what doesn't. We just went through this exercise and figured out what channels uh, had worked for us and which channels had, had not. And back in, I want to say May, we cut off all paid on Google. Why? Because all of the leads that we drive through Google, they just wouldn't convert. Or they would convert, but the actual LTV of those customers was net negative. So we would spend more to acquire a customer than the customer is worth. And so we cut it off. 
And we've done that and evaluated every channel, whether it was paid social, whether it was SEM, whether it was field and events, whether it was content, like we looked at every single channel, looked at all the lead sources for all of the different leads that had come in, all of our current customers, we surveyed our customers. And then we just made hard decisions about like, hey, this channel might work, but we just don't have enough shots at bat. And that's okay. So we turned it off and doubled down on the things that did work. And so that's, I think, ultimately what every marketer has to do. The question is, how do you actually get access to that data? So the first thing is you got to have uh, a CRM that's connected to everything. So for us, we use Salesforce, we used HubSpot. They both work really well. Um, ideally, you set up campaigns inside of either of those two things. So if somebody attends an event, they're part of a campaign. If somebody comes through a paid ad, the UTM passes through all the way from your lead form to your CRM. So you know which paid campaigns have performed. You look back and when people are onboarding, you ask them, hey, where'd you hear about us? So you can get at least first party insights into where they came from. And so you start to pull all these different data sources together, but it's important you have that foundation so you can really tap into that data, which I think is the single biggest lesson I've learned. If you don't have access to the data and you can't make sense of the data, then you're really just throwing darts at a board and hoping one sticks. Yeah, absolutely. That foundation there data is probably the most important step that um, marketers can make at the moment in terms of working out what's working and what's not and scaling the things that are working, perhaps having a you know, careful think about the stuff that isn't. I guess, um, you know, the page side is one thing, but, you know, in terms of your audiences and the demographics, that's something you've given some thought to as well. I think when the era of plentiful or bountiful money, um, we start to think outside of our core demographics and our core audiences and into you know influencers and into other areas where you know we want to spend money but perhaps they're they're tier b in terms of importance so you have to tighten your your demographics and your targeting not only for the ads but also for the audiences that you, you serve those ads to ultimately it's interesting at the previous company I worked at bolt uh we had a very core tight icp so it was directors of finance heads of ecom um cmos basically anybody that would touch the tech stack. And so we would mm-hmm. we would advertise to all those individuals. And then we got hyper-focused on a few key por- personalities and that's how we scaled the ad budgets and that's how we scaled who we targeted and that's how we scaled our field and events and our outbound strategy, et cetera. Here at Arc, we started with a very tight ICP going after founders, co-founders, um, heads of finance, directors of finance, CFOs, et cetera. But what's interesting with our business is we've actually expanded it a little bit. So when you think about channel distribution for us, that's one of the largest channels that we get leads from. So what does that mean? Well, that would be people like heads of partnership where they don't necessarily have a direct line into the budget, but they're the ones that are on the influencer panel of making a decision of where they want to bank or how much capital they need access to. Mm -hmm. Same thing with heads of marketing, right? Heads of marketing have this budget. There's this set line item. And if they want more budget, they have to find it from somewhere. Well, how do you do that? Easy. If you have a capital provider, you can take revenue that historically took 12 months to amortize, write you a check for 90 cents on the dollar, and then go directly deploy it back into growth. So Mm -hmm. we've actually started to expand and experiment with different personas based on those different use cases of both capital and cash management. And that's been pretty fruitful so far. So I think we'll continue to expand those personas into things that make sense, but don't necessarily come off as the right investment up front. And so I think it's just a trial and error thing of we'll continue to double down on the audiences that work, but test new ones to see if we can tap into those markets. 
and segments. Yeah, it's a brave thing to do, I think, experiment uh, in an era of you know downward pressure on budget. Uh, something I've been giving some thoughts to over the last week or two is how, because I think that's a really important line item in a budget, is having um, an element to experiment both in terms of channels or audiences, demographics, even ads. You know, you, you're going to fail a little bit, and, but you're also going to learn a few things and things are going to work. But I think continuing to experiment and to work out where these new audiences are and where these new channels are and what works for you is, um, is still important. A thousand percent. We carve about 10% of our total marketing budget to experiments. So trying new channels, new activations, new target audiences, new segments, new demographics, new channel partnerships. We're doing one in a couple of weeks with um, the, the guy who runs events in New York. He's branded himself as the Great Gatsby of New York. He brings together these tech parties. And so we sponsored one of those. We'll see how that works. And so we've started to now play into different channels and different activations to just see what works. I think there's a very big difference between good marketing and great marketing. And I don't think you can be truly great until you have experimented and tried a bunch of different things. And so we're on the path to trying to become those great marketers, figuring out what messaging resonates, what's the positioning that resonates, where are the channels that our target audience lives, and then ultimately how can we add value to those individuals and convince them that we're the leading source of whatever it needs, whether it's capital or cash management and until you've experimented with enough channels, you just don't know what works. And so that's why we carve such a big percentage of our budget to experiments, because without it, like you just, you do what has worked and you don't grow as a marketer and you don't grow as an organization. So. Hey, podcast people looking for new ideas and resources to crush your revenue marketing goals. Our pro plus membership is your secret weapon. With ProPlus, you'll be armed with a growing toolkit of accredited courses, real-world case studies, and battle-tested templates to annihilate the competition. With this plan, you get access to our Revenue Marketing Certified Call Course, which will equip you with insider frameworks and secrets to dominate leads, campaigns, and feedback loops. We're also dropping exclusive master's courses so you can learn from the greats. You'll be taking names in positioning, segmentation, and more. Plus, score a free yearly ticket to our exclusive Revenue Marketing Summit at a location near you. Rub shoulders with the titans of the industry. Whether your goals are short, medium or long term, Pro Plus gives you the ammo to conquer them all. Level up your Revenue Marketing game now. Lock and load Pro Plus at RevenueMarketingAlliance.com and start dominating like never before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But thinking about the kind of paid media budget, I think um, adverts, paid ads, they tend to fall into one of three categories. You have the brand advertising, the demand gen advertising, and the nurture advertising. If we have this kind of laser focus on revenue, return investment, are we just going to end up shifting our entire budget in, into the demand gen bucket at the expense of brand and nurture? If your budget is tight, I would not invest a single dollar in brand because brand is something that you build across all of your channels. And I think brand specifically in paid is one of those channels where you can point to and say it's working because you can demonstrate a positive return on ad spend. My challenge with brand and more specifically brand search is that if somebody already heard of your brand and you already rank in the top three results, why would you pay for that click? Like, they just scroll down to find your website, click. And so you're essentially getting these false positives 
of, hey, these ads work because they're clicking on them. Well, they were looking for your brand in the first place. So you didn't need to advertise on it because they were going to click on your organic link anyways. And sure, your competitors might bid on your branded keywords, but let's say they capture 5% or 10% of those clicks, and then they can capture 1% of conversions. Like the amount of money it's going to cost you to actually maintain that branded search position is going to be much more than the value that it provides. So that's the first thing. I definitely would not invest in brand if you have a tight budget. Second thing is demand gen. Well, demand gen is good because it drives top of the funnel. Um, But I like to think of it like if you have a top of the funnel bucket and you have a big hole at the bottom, well, no matter how much you pour into it, like some's going to fall out. So yeah, you can spend it and yeah, you can hit your top line goals like MQLs or SQLs or SQOs, but ultimately if they don't convert into opportunities, then you've effectively wasted that spend. And so then it leaves us with nurture campaigns. Why are nurture campaigns the things that I would double down on? Because nurture campaigns are like putting a a fix or flex seal on the bottom of that bucket. If you can improve your conversion rates from the leads you already have in the funnel, one to 3%, you can have a massive impact immediately on the business, meaning you can drive direct revenue into the business and now you have more funds to reinvest. So if you're looking for a quick win, nurture campaigns are definitely the way to go. There's two ways I see nurture campaigns work. Uh, retargeting has worked really well for us. So people that come to the website, visit a product page, don't fill out a form or come to the website, view some content, but don't fill out a form or come to the website, fill out a form, but don't end up converting. We have different audiences for different segments of who's visited the website and how they've interacted with us. Retargeting campaigns, number one, best source of return on ad spend that at least I've seen. And then supplemental to that, we've started to experiment with some ABM campaigns, um, specifically for engaged accounts. So people that have replied to our outbound sequences, people that have downloaded eBooks, people that have interacted with us at events, but just haven't converted. Similar to retargeting, though a little bit different in how we approach it. Um, But our ABM campaigns for um, warm accounts has been also a super effective strategy. We use two things for that, Warmly. So Warmly will tell you which accounts have visited the website, how frequently they visited the website. If they know the specific individual, they can tell you that individual visited your website, here are the pages they visited. We set up outreach sequences, which went and targeted them. and then just hit them with a super personalized message like, hey, saw you were checking out our money market funds and T-bills. Want to chat about it? Have any questions? Mm-hmm. So that's been one of the tools that's worked really well. The other one has been Mesh. Um, Mesh allows you to see from a campaign level, what are all the counts you've targeted and touched and where they're at in the funnel. And so you can be super targeted with what campaigns you're running and what tactics you're trying and how effective those are at actually influencing the pipeline. So... If you have a tight budget, I would definitely say start with nurtures. I would definitely start with retargeting and then get into ABM if you have the additional budget. Once you fix the bottom of your funnel and you've plugged most of those holes, then I would say focus on demand gen to drive more leads into the funnel. And then finally, if you have additional budget after all of that and everything's humming, now you can go back into brand. Gotcha. Understood. Yeah, I think um, I think targeting those in market or organically in market for your product and Kind of accelerating that funnel rather than going out trying to find new is always going to be a great use of uh, great use to spend in a in an environment where there's less money knocking around. So thanks for that. Um, the 
Another area I just wanted to touch on is obviously the paid element is really important, but paid media is always directing traffic somewhere, right? You're direct, hopefully directing traffic to your website where you hope they might convert or engage you in another way. Are you are you spending much time looking at how you can improve the convertibility of your own asset once you once you get this kind of precious paid traffic somewhere you want it to go? Are you thinking, okay, you know, we've got this traffic there, we're spending precious dollars getting them to this particular page. How can we make sure that they're converting at the best at the best possible rate that they can? Yeah, we've done a few things, um, and we're constantly trying to fix and automate and optimize our funnel. Um, first thing was. Somebody comes to the website, they fill out the form. Typically, if they fill out the form, you have like a one or two step email sequence. Instead, we've migrated all of our sequences post form submit to an eight step sequence. So that eight step sequence is not like, hey, book a meeting. It's not like, hey, jump on a call. It's not, hey, did you see my message? It's not, hey, nudging this message, blah, blah, blah. That's what everybody does. Instead, what we do is when somebody fills out the form, the first thing we do is say, hey, thanks so much for filling out the form. You know, saw you were looking at X, Y, Z. Maybe it's capital or cash management, depending upon which form they filled out. Here are some resources you might find interesting. And so there's an ebook, and maybe there's a blog or two. And then the next week, it's like, hey, found a couple more resources you might find interesting. Send those. And the next week, it's like, hey, created this video that walks through this process of capital allocation. And the next one, hey, here are a few more resources that you might find interesting related to X. And so it starts to add value to that conversation. And then at the end of that email, it's always like, if you have any questions or if you want to book time, here's where you can do it. And so it kind of flips that script of like, instead of being a hard sale, it's going directly into adding value into that individual. So they see us as more of a thought leader instead of just a transactional relationship. The other major test we did was we had a single button on the page, which was book a demo. Mm -hmm. Book a demo was really good, right? People are booking all these demos. Um, but the challenge is that we don't want to meet necessarily with everybody. Like some people aren't qualified. Some people aren't a great fit. And so we added a second button, which is direct onboarding. So the primary CTA is direct onboarding. Secondary CTA is book a demo. When we did that, immediately product signups went through the roof. And then again, because we had those nurture sequences that said, hey, if you want, you can book time. Now it's a completely different conversation because people who are interested in market, want to buy, want to sign up for the account, want to get access to capital, can go through onboarding and do everything they need to do. And then in the back end, if they want to have a call because they have questions or they need help signing up or they want help through onboarding, we can hand hold, hand hold them through that entire process. And so those two things alone just skyrocketed our conversions. And I think... We've done a few other things similar to that, um, which have improved conversions slightly, but those have been the two major things that we've done. The other major thing we've done was um, eliminate the amount of noise we had through bots and other um, non-true lead sources by enabling recaptcha on our forms. So if you have a lot of bot traffic and you get a lot of fake submissions, one of the things you can do is enable recaptcha takes one click, they just click the check recapture button. And that eliminated effectively almost all of our noise from robots. Then the last thing we did was we had problems with people entering their personal emails into the form. Personal email is problematic because A, they're not checking it and B, like they're just not going to book a meeting after you now hit their personal email a bunch of times. So yeah. we set up domain blocking on all of our forms 
so that people couldn't enter in Gmails, Yahoo's, Charters, all the personal email domains. And that, again, was another major step towards improving both the quality and quantity of leads that came into the funnel. Perfect. That's great. These ones, these emails that you were sending after the, um, the form fill, were they, did they look like marketing emails or did they look like one-to-one um, kind of outreach emails? Yeah, one-to-one plain text outreach emails. We've started experimenting with some more branded um, marketing emails, but those are more so on the product side. Gotcha. That's really interesting. Okay, so I think the kind of backbone of this conversation is that you're getting your uh, getting your data in in a good shape, so you know what's working, what's not, and that allows you to scale the things that are working. Perhaps for the second, think about the stuff that isn't. And I know that often you've prepared some data for us to take a look at you know, to bring this conversation to life and to illustrate it with a real-world example. So if you want to uh, take us through what you've got there. Yeah, so it's interesting. When we started marketing last May, which is when I came on, we had roughly 98% branded traffic. So branded traffic being somebody who had typed in some search parameters plus ARC. Today, after implementing a content strategy, developing a whole bunch of content, creating a whole bunch of different publications and blog posts and learning center articles and encyclopedia pages and a bunch of other things, proud to say that today we're at 17% non-branded search. So an improvement of almost 6x or 7x from where we started, which is awesome. So that's the first thing. Um, And that tells us two things. It tells us that A, content is working, and it tells us B, that our strategy around getting away from branded search is is working because people are finding us through other non-branded channels. So that's that's are these all are these all channels here. So it's not just paid traffic. That's all that's all traffic coming to that's organic. Okay. That's just organic search. So that's non-branded organic search. Now compare that to some of our people or peers that are in market. Most of them have between ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent branded. Why is that important? Well, that means that they do a really good job of finding people who already know about them, but they're missing out this massive segment of the market, which is people that have never heard of their brand. And so by having a higher non-branded search volume, effectively, we're capturing those people who have never heard of our brand before, which means that we're capturing a larger percentage of the pie. So that's the first thing. The second thing um, is we looked at our spend across all of our channels, meaning paid and field and PR and comms and paid media and content, et cetera. And the most efficient channel by far for us has been field and events marketing. And so typically we'll spend between three and $5,000 on a dinner. We'll invite between 20 and 25 founders. We'll get roughly two or three accounts converted from that. And so the return on spend for that has been upwards of 10 to 12 X. So we put in 10 to $12 or sorry, five to $6,000. And then we return in net revenue, roughly 10 to 12 times that. So that's been our most efficient channel. Second most efficient channel has been social. Obviously there's no spend in social. You just create content and you post. People argue that there's a time cost associated with that. But from my perspective, there's no actual dollars that go into it. Mm -hmm. Social for us has driven uh, an immense amount of depository volume and advanced volume. Again, that's an investment that takes maybe three or four hours a week, but it's driving meaningful volume to the business. And then the last thing is content marketing. We haven't spent a single dollar on content marketing. We haven't paid for any backlinks. We haven't paid for any agencies to produce content. We haven't paid 
anything for content. We just produced it ourselves. Um, and that's been another thing where you spend three to six hours a week and you just get this massive return on spend, meaning massive return on people coming inbound and then converting and then depositing or taking in advance, which has been really cool. So is those are a couple non, of non-branded traffic is coming from through the content you're producing. Almost exclusively through content. Yeah. Our product pages see, I would say somewhere around 5% of our traffic from search results. The content marketing is upwards of like 30%. The home pages, I would say probably 40%. Content pages, 30%. And then the rest is just split between everything else. Gotcha. So that was interesting. We also looked at customer volume and where um, the traffic comes from in terms of like different channel breakdowns. The uh, highest um, converting channel or like most effective channel for driving the highest amount of balance has actually been referrals. So founders referring other founders. And that's been interesting because we've seen that channel grow over time from, you know, a sub-segment of our market to now representing a fairly significant portion of our, our, our um, GTV or volume from both a cash management perspective and capital perspective. Um, how so that's you, another how one. From a, from, a, from a CRM perspective, from a reporting perspective, I'm interested how you, how you track that channel. Yeah, so most of our partners have their own dedicated landing page. So like okay. if you were talking about somebody like a Slack or a Gong, or Rippling, they have their own dedicated landing pages. So when we transcend traffic to them, they built a page that's basically like Rippling backslash Arc. And so from their perspective, that's where we send our traffic to, right? Then we have the vice versa, which is Arc.tech backslash uh, Rippling. And so leads can come directly from Rippling then to that Arc landing page. And then that UTM from that page actually passes through to Salesforce. Also, inside of product onboarding, we have options where people can say where they heard about us or where they found us and referrals another source. So we look at both first-party data of what they've inputted, but also um, third-party data, well, I guess first-party data of the URL and UTM passing them through Salesforce, and you match the two. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah, it's really interesting. You've got the um, you've got that set up. I think the you know. I guess old school marketers are called that word of mouth, but it's always digital word of mouth that's uh, driving a really important channel for you. Yeah. And the problem is that most times you can't actually capture that because most people yeah. don't ask where, where people heard about you and nor do they have customized landing pages for your partners. So you just have no idea where this quote unquote direct traffic came from. And so that's part of that dark funnel where just you have no idea. And so what we've tried to do is shine a light on that dark funnel by by being as efficient as we can with tracking across the entire funnel. Yeah, perfect. I think that comes back to um, you know, where you started this conversation, Austin, in terms of you, know, you really need to have the uh, the data foundation there to work out what's going on, what's working, and what's not. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, look, we're we're kind of at time, Austin. Um, I just want to perhaps summarize. Our conversation into three things that you know people listening to this can come away with and we just touched on one of them there i think that having that data foundation there allows you to you know is your springboard to um you know working out what's working and if you're in, under pressure from a budgetary perspective it allows you to be really efficient with your budgetary spend um and i think often one of the things that i took away from what you said is around the, the type of that brand versus demand versus nurture 
I've been giving some thoughts to that myself. And um, yeah, brands are tricky ones to to track, I think. Um, but I think in an environment where there's less money available, focusing on demand gen, and also, um, you know, I'm listening to what you said there around nurture. I think that's a really good point to take away from that. And then finally, you know, don't forget our, about our own digital real estate. Make sure that's properly optimised. So the traffic you're directing to, um, you know, to our to our website, to our websites is uh, optimised to capture as much as we can. That's exactly right. And I think having the right tech stack enables you to do that. It enables you to shed a light on the dark funnel, figure out where people have coming from so that when you have the spend down the line and you've raised a new round, you can put gasoline on the fire. And I think ultimately, to your point, we've grown up in this environment of growth at all costs, which kind of made us lazy. Now we're forced to double down and really dig into the data to figure out what works. And I think when we all come out of this on the other side, we'll all be better marketers because of it. And data scientists, maybe. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, uh, Austin, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, it's been really enlightening. I think having someone with both uh, knowledge of you know revenue marketing and also that finance side of things has been really helpful. So thanks so much for your time. Where can people find you? What are your uh, socials? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn, Austin Beverage. They can also email me. I put my email right in my headline on LinkedIn, abeverage at arc.tech. Um, and that's where I'm at. I'm also on Crunchbase, um, Pitchbook, Product Hunt. You let me know. Great. Thanks again for your time, Austin. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Revenue Marketing. Don't stop now. There's more to explore. Dive into our other captivating episodes where we uncover revenue boosting strategies, insider secrets and inspiring success stories. Get ready to unleash your marketing potential and stay ahead of the game. Keep listening and enjoy the next episode.